0: DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Tan Books, presents Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thickpen. Dr. Thickpen is an internationally known speaker, best-selling author, and award-winning journalist who has published 43 books in a wide variety of genres and subjects, including The Rapture Trap, a Catholic response to end-times fever, and The Manual for Spiritual Warfare, the book on which this series is based. In 2008, Dr. Thickpen was appointed by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to their National Advisory Council. He has served the Church as a theologian, historian, apologist, evangelist, and catechist in a number of settings, speaking frequently in Catholic and secular media broadcasts and at conferences, seminars, parish missions, and scholarly gatherings. Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thickpen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Paul, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Chris,
2: it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Vital for us, isn't it, to understand things visible and invisible. We we really need to have a comprehension of that, don't we, Paul?
2: We do. You know, I've seen old movies of Civil War battles where you have the two sides entrenched on either side of a, a beautiful meadow, and they're firing across at each other. And I've often had this picture in my mind of a little child wandering out on the battlefield, and kind of enjoying the flowers, smelling the flowers, and looking at the butterflies and the birds and the pretty clouds with bullets whizzing on either side, not not even aware that he's in the middle of a battle. And sometimes I think Christians are like this, and, and folks who aren't Christians, that there really is a battle for our souls going on. And if we're unaware of it, um, we're extremely vulnerable.
0: It even tells us in the Scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion goes about seeking someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Isn't it true, Paul, that even today there are many who will hear that in the scriptures and yet somehow present to people and even to themselves that the devil isn't real, that some concoction that has been devised to maybe frighten us into uh compitulation.
2: I call it the devil's stealth strategy. He's quite happy for us to believe that he doesn't even exist. That gives him all kinds of room to maneuver. And yet it is true. I mean, it seems remarkable that given that we have a dogmatic definition of the devil and demons in the fourth Lateran council and ecumenical council, and it's in papal statements and it's in, it's in the liturgy and has been for centuries. The church fathers all talked about the devil the great theologians and the experience of all kinds of folks that we can't just write off as crazy especially many of the saints whose moral integrity and intellectual soundness can't be really debated reasonably we've got all that evidence and yet you still have folks who want to say there's there's no such thing i, had, I talked to a friend the other day who went to a i won't say where it was but it was a, a catholic parish in a another city and had a speaker there who out and out said there's there's no devil at the, at the parish and uh, just thinking my goodness i how can you come to that conclusion unless i guess perhaps you're uh, an atheist as i once was and rule out the the spiritual realm altogether but even then in my own experience i began to come up against demonic powers that i couldn't just write off as some kind of unknown powers of the human mind and that drove me back then to the gospel to say okay if these things are real if there really is some kind of spiritual World that's not just the matter and energy of this world. I better find out if, you know, what's going on. Because if there's a devil and there's no God, I'm in trouble.
0: For the Christian, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who we profess, he experienced interaction with the evil one explicitly in the scriptures. How is it that we can deny that? Doesn't that say something about ultimately our belief in him?
2: Him and, and in the scripture itself, too. You know, th- just look at the passage, most obvious passage, where he's uh, in, the, in the wilderness being tempted by the devil and having, actually having a dialogue with him.
1: Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was hungry. He will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Be gone Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve." Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him.
2: Are we really to think that that he was just having this is all this really represents is an kind of interior conversation with himself about temptation? But more importantly, I, I mean it, a large portion of his ministry was was casting out demons, was was exorcism, and in one particular case, um, we all know the, the the story of of the man who had the the legion of demons, many demons in him, and our Lord cast the demons out of the man into a herd of pigs. You can't cast a mental disorder out of a man into pigs, and if you think that, that's how you try to interpret it. then either you think that Jesus didn't know what he was doing, and for a Christian, I don't think that's you know that's an option or that the Scriptures, or the Gospels in particular, are not historically reliable. And for Catholics, for sure, that's not an option either.
0: In many cases, we hear, Paul, those who will say, well, the, the demoniacs, well, they were epileptic, or maybe they were schizophrenic. There was of different diagnosis that we feel we can determine in today's world. We attribute to those experiences back then. And then that somehow causes us to doubt their expression in the scriptures.
2: Well, you know, I think throughout church history, there have probably been plenty of times when someone had that kind of condition and it was mistaken for demonic possession. But I think, again, we have to look at the scriptures. In those cases, either Jesus didn't know what he was talking about or he was pretending. I don't think he's going to do that either, trying to accommodate the people's beliefs. That wouldn't make any sense for the Son of God who could just say to them, no he doesn't have a demon this is just an illness and i'm going to cure it or else it means that the gospels aren't are reliable and I, and i don't for christians i don't think any of those options are are open he was the son of god he he knew what he was doing he wasn't just having interior dialogues and he, and he wasn't just healing people of diseases that involved a, a demon that he was kind of playing along with their ignorance that's not who our lord was
0: would you think i'm being too simplistic paul if i were to say for those out there who would rather not even begin to engage in this conversation or even to acknowledge that there is that evil out there, it would be almost as dangerous as a, you had a home and you're in the middle of the Everglades. We're not aware that there are alligators and dangerous creatures out there that could devour you if you weren't aware of their presence.
2: And, yes, and worse yet, that you'd have the door wide open and the windows wide open yes. for them to come in.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: Someone once said, I think it was one of the early economists, actually, who said that men, people are more likely to be accurate in the things they affirm than in the things they deny. I think this is a case of that. As long as you, you haven't had any experience that really seems to be in this direction clearly, it's it's easy just to die. those things don't happen. But I remember back in my, my Pentecostal days before I became Catholic, and uh, I learned so much from so many Bible teachers. There was a Bible teacher who… When he was talking about the, the charismatic gifts of the Spirit that a lot of even Christians denied and said, no, that by principle, they just can't happen anymore, only in scripture times. And yet there were people who were experiencing them. And he once said, well, you know, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with just a theory. And I think that's that's kind of the case with this too. You take someone like myself who was an atheist who thought he had all the answers denied any kind of spiritual realm beyond matter and energy of this world. I was a philosophical materialist, and it was easy for me to kind of have deny this thing that I had never experienced or that I didn't know of experiencing. But when the experience hit me between the eyes, it was very hard for me anymore to deny it. And I became one of those who now was much more accurate in what I affirmed than what I used to deny.
0: And the good news, and I hope that we're able to reiterate this over and over and over again in the course of our conversations, that the victory has been won. And one of the reasons why you have so beautifully compiled in the Manual for Spiritual Warfare is that this may sound frightening, but as our Lord said, be not afraid. Because this is about the triumph of God, of all that is good over evil.
2: And that's why one of my all-time favorite Bible verses is, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Mm. It's such a powerful verse that we have the Lord Jesus Christ in us. We have the whole trinity indwelling in us. And Satan, however powerful, is still just a creature. He's not a god. He's, uh, his power is quite small compared to the power of God. And in the end, if we have our champion, our champion, our commander is Jesus Christ, and he's given us the weapons of our warfare that St. Paul talks about, And in the end, the devil doesn't have a chance, not against us.
0: It's very important, particularly for lay people. And I'm speaking primarily to a a Catholic audience, but for all Christian lay folks out there, that we understand that we have not been left orphaned and that we do have the ability in the name of Jesus and through uh, that, that great gift of the Holy Spirit to... Not allow these things to triumph over us. And yet, we also have to understand that there are certain roles. God is a God of order. And so, there are those who are equipped to handle maybe the battle in a better way than we can even approach it. Am I stating that well enough, do you think, Paul?
2: Yes, we go back to the gospel, and there were certain, above all, when Jesus dealt with demonic powers, he dealt with it in an authority he had that was. Uh, unique. He was the, the divine son of God in the flesh. And that's why again and again in the gospel accounts, the demons will say, we know who you are, you know, and, and they want to run from him and they're afraid of him. On the other hand, we see in the book of Acts, when you have a group of men who are considered themselves exorcists and going around trying to cast out demons who who did not have Christ in them, who were not Christians, they tried to do it. And the demons responded, well, we know Paul, St. Paul, who had been casting out demons in Jesus' name. And we know Jesus, but who the heck are you?" and then beats them up, basically. They have a a terrible encounter. That There's this matter of authority that's so important, that that God has chosen to give a certain authority for, at different levels, you might say. There's an authority every believer has to resist the devil, to kind of rebuke him in their own lives, to, to deny him, to oppose him. But then there's, at certain levels of the battle, Christ has given this authority that he had for exorcism to his apostles and to their successors, the bishops, and to the priests that they've designated for that in exorcism. And so there's this kind of like a whole range of things that we can do, and then there's certain things that every priest by the authority he's been given can do in minor exorcism. But then there's certain things that only an appointed exorcist should ever try to handle. doesn't mean that we're powerless against some of those really tough cases, but that the way Christ has arranged things, he limits the folks who are, have given the authority, been given the authority to to deal with that. And there's good reason for it because, as you see from the Acts story, if kind of everybody could just handle it at, at any level or try to, the folks who don't, wouldn't exactly know what they're doing. There, there are all kinds of complex issues involved in an exorcism. I remember, if I may give a story, uh, back again in my Pentecostal days, and we had exorcisms uh, as far as we could go. I mean, there, we had the name of Jesus, which is very powerful. We had the scripture, which is very powerful. So many other things we didn't know, like, know, sacramentals and the sacraments and other things. We did what we could with them. And I never performed one, but I was present for them. And I remember in one case where um, a pastor was speaking to a demon and a man, and I'm convinced he was possessed. And, and he said, uh, you know, leave in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the thing answered back to him, where will I go? And this man was new to it and, you know, hadn't had any experience and any training and didn't really have much authority. But he just said, well, I don't care where you go, just get out of him. And the thing began to laugh horribly and say, well, I know exactly where I'll go and, uh, because the soul I want to get into is right in the next room. And you know, so it, was, it was a terrible thing. I, someone who had been trained as an exorcist would have known how to handle that and not said something like that, go where you want to. It's just a small thing. But, but what I'm saying is to be given the heavy responsibility and the heavy battle of being uh, an exorcist for, for major exorcisms. A person has to have the right training and experience and temperament and and personal holiness. If our Lord had just opened that up to everybody, there'd be all kinds of people having the same trouble that those folks in Acts did.
0: We'll return to Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thickpen in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app? where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming. Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. the Memorari. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to Thy protection, implored Thy help, or sought Thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to Thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To Thee do I come, before Thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in Thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen.
1: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world,
0: listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thickpen. Essentially, in the manual for spiritual warfare, a real a wonderful guide to help us to know what we can do and then when to turn and how to turn to the church, to others in in that order to be able to help us.
2: Yes, you know, and to realize the devil's assault on us does have different levels, you might say, that the church speaks of what we call the ordinary activity of the devil and the extraordinary activity. And the extraordinary is the stuff that gets into the you know that the movies want to talk about with, with exorcisms, with preternatural um, occurrences and things like possession or oppression where or people are being terribly tormented, that kind of thing. And so there's folks with special authority to deal with those things. But for most of us, the ordinary activity of the devil really can be summed up in the word temptation. And he has all kinds of strategies. It's not so simple as just temptation. And that's what a good portion of this book is about. So that I think if we can realize that when temptation comes to us, the enemy usually has some role in it and what his strategies are and how we resist it, the weapons that we have at our disposal, the armor that we must develop, which is our virtues, that we can deal with a lot of it ourselves that way. But if we find ourselves moving into the realm of, of being what we would call oppression, you know, something much, much more horrible happening or or even possession or someone we know. And that's the point at which we need this specialized help, and especially the what we need is someone who has not just the knowledge but has been authorized by the church because the church was authorized by Christ to share his authority for, for exorcism.
0: And it, many of those topics, those aspects of our conversation, we'll, we'll address soon. But in the meantime, just kind of laying out for folks exactly terms, essentially. <laughs> just so we are clear on what we're discussing. And one of those is precisely what are demons, Paul? I mean, what? how are we to understand their reality?
2: Well, I think the first thing we have to realize is what they're not. <laughs> when we're talking about demons, we're not talking mm-hmm. about ghosts. We're not talking about extraterrestrials, that kind of thing. In certain kinds of subcultures, I guess, New Age, you often have a mixture of these kinds of things. But the Church teaches us clearly that That Satan and the other demons were at first good angels. They were created good. God doesn't create anything evil. He creates good and by its own choice it may become evil. And they were created by God uh, apparently before the creation of the human race. We don't know all the time about the timing of that. But they became evil by their own free choice. They radically rejected God and his reign. And the leader of those rebels was the one we now call Satan. His Original name in scripture is Lucifer, which means bearer of light, which is a beautiful thing. He was a, a beautiful angel, but he had apparently great authority. And when he rebelled then, if we take that number, one third of the host of heaven falling from the book of Revelation, then a huge number of the angelic creatures with him in his rebellion. They were cast out of heaven. Uh, we have a depiction of St. Michael in the book of Revelation uh, leading God's forces against them. Because they're angels, they don't have physical bodies the way we do. They're pure spirit. And that gives them certain powers that they did not lose uh, when they fell, which makes them especially dangerous. So, like any other angel, they're not bound by space. They can move from place to place or turn their attention from place to place without having to move through space to do it. Physical barriers are no barriers to them at all. More importantly, because the, when they communicate with us, they can speak directly into our minds. Uh, in normal conversation or, with, or even when we're reading, the way that we know that a thought that comes into our mind is not our own thought is that we, our senses tell us it's coming from outside of us. I may hear a voice, my ears tell me, I may read something in a book, my eyes tell me it's coming from outside me. and In all those ways, that's what our, our bodies do that, and we, we're getting it through a physical medium of some kind. But angels don't have a physical body, and they're able then to communicate without that physical body directly to our mind. And so that means that the thoughts they speak to us can seem like our own thoughts. It's hard for us to distinguish them from our own thoughts because we don't have any way of immediately knowing that comes from outside of me. It came by way of my ears. It came by way of my eyes. And that gives them you know, great power in the sense of, of deception, making us think that their thoughts are our thoughts. And that's, of course, one of, the, one of the names that Jesus gives to Satan. He says he is the, a liar and the father of, of lies. So understanding that about the angelic nature and especially then about the demonic use of their nature helps us to understand part of, of what we're up against. Like angels, then, they have, they have certain power to influence the physical world. Folks have debated throughout church history about whether they have the power to read our minds. I think the majority opinion has been that they don't but that they're very good at reading body language (laughs) and they, they watch us to see what it is that we're afraid of to see what it is that tempts us to see what it, what it is that causes us to doubt. And then they play on those things. So I don't think, you know, we can say authoritatively one way or the other, but even given that limitation, if if that is a limitation for them, they're still really, really good at figuring out how to, to, how to tempt us.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, it's almost as though, they watch us and we have to remember they aren't necessarily, they don't tire because they're not like us. They don't necessarily sleep so they can watch us. Yes. And just as a married couple, you kind of know you don't have to hear, you don't have to speak, but I can tell on the look on my husband's face over something or a roll of the eye or so I can read body language and I know exactly yes. what he's thinking. It can be like that. Am I correct?
2: Yes. I mean, that's, that's my understanding. Folks who study the, well, psychologists especially and folks who study the human body tell us that when we're looking at things and something gather, get, catches our attention that we desire, that even if we don't show anything on our face, the the pupils of our eyes get wider. Mm-hmm. And it might even be something that we wouldn't notice, but a demon can see that and he will he will take note of that. So he can look and see, and if he's with you long enough, he'll see, he'll hear the things you say when you reveal your mind. He'll see the things that are most likely to tempt you. He'll see the things that cause – may just be a, a tiny little reaction in your body, but he, he can see the fear. He can see the lust. He can see the anger, um, those kinds of things. So that the, they're just really good at reading it, I guess is the best. You you get this especially if you look at those wonderful accounts that are very, have been very helpful to me of the desert fathers and mothers from the ancient church. mm mm-hmm. They were just specialists at this kind of thing. You start out with St. Anthony of the Desert, who's really you know, one of the fathers of the monastic movement. And he actually went through this period of terrible assault by demonic powers who were so afraid of him because they, they had some sense of what he was going to do. The, you know, It's interesting. In ancient times, we, we look at what the, the early monks did and how they went out to the desert. They left the cities, and they lived alone. And, they, uh, and, and a lot of folks, say, see they were just being escapists. But that's not how they saw it at all. In those days, the wilderness was seen as the, the realm of the devil. Uh, they looked to the gospel stories and how uh, the demoniacs usually wandered around the tombs, which themselves were out in the wilderness, outside of the city. And, all, and Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. The, the early monks saw their job as to go out into the wilderness, to go on the devil's own turf and to conquer him on his own turf. Very, very powerful thing. And St. Anthony did that and did defeat them on their own turf. But, but because they, they themselves were consummate psychologists of a sort, they, in the real sense of the word, the, the suke in Greek is the soul. They studied the soul. And so they, they were very good at analyzing what the strategies uh, of the devil were, uh, what kind of strategies he had. And they did talk about this, how he can observe these things that you do. Even if you don't observe it yourself, they read the body language. And of course, we can't hide the body language, but it just means we need to know ourselves well. We need to know what it is that's attracting us or what it is that's arousing in us, whether it's lust or anger or fear or whatever, so that we can be uh, on our guard. I think it was St. Ignatius of Loyola who said that the, the devil is like a siege force trying to overtake a city, a walled city. And what he does is he goes around the walls of the city very carefully until he finds a weak spot, and that's where he focuses his attack. And so we have to be on the alert for that. What are, what are the weak spots we've got?
0: Now, it's very key in understanding this, that once we are living, as you said, in a life of virtue, when we're living a virtual life, because God gave us the the keys to be able to know him and to know ourselves and to keep ourselves pure, as pure as we can, so that, when these thoughts the sounds, the temptations come at us, we know they're not of him or that it is not something that is draped in virtue.
2: Yes, the, the virtue, I mean, one of the virtues is wisdom, right? And with that wisdom then comes the ability to discern. The way that he usually tempts us is by something that is good in itself or attractive in itself. But he offers us a way to get that good thing that's contrary to God's will, and so part of wisdom is being able to look at the good thing and recognize what's good in it, but then looking at the little bit of poison in the cup, you know, that He puts in there. So, I think it was uh, probably Saint Ambrose who, who uh, early on, was speaking about the temptation in the Garden of Adam and Eve, and the temptation that the devil offered, the serpent offered, was you know, to Eve that you know, if you eat this fruit, you'll you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. And he said, Now, you know, look at that. That's that's a good thing. We, God wants us to be like God. <laughs> he wants us to know the difference. He wants to be able to discern good and evil. But what's the problem here? He he offers something that he knows is going to resonate with Eve's very soul. Because she was created to be like God. She was created to be able to discern good from evil. She was so everything inside of her is going to say, Yes, yes, that's what I want. But then the devil comes on and says, and the quickest way to do that is to eat this fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the poison in the apple, so to speak. That The, the apple itself yeah, probably looks really beautiful, all those things. And, and, and the thing that the devil was offering her, to be like God, is something we were made to be. But he offers it in, in, a, in a poisonous way. He, he wants us to take usually some kind of shortcut to the good thing that involves disobeying God. And so part of wisdom is being able to discern both what the good is that's being offered and what the evil is that's being used to use the good as a bait.
0: A prayer found in the Manual for Spiritual Warfare To God the Father Our Father, who reign in heaven, come and reign in my soul. Come and sanctify it by your presence. Come and subject it to your holy will and render it obedient to the inspirations of your grace. Extinguish from my heart every feeling of hatred and revenge. Forgive me as I forgive. Grant to me such wisdom and such strength that I may triumph over all temptations. Deliver me from all those evils that oppress me and under which I groan. I come to you as a child to his father to be fed, as a subject to his prince to be protected, as one afflicted to his only help to be consoled and comforted. Deliver us, we beseech you, O Lord, from all evils past, present, and to come, and by the intercession of Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, and of all the saints that by the assistance of your holy grace, we may always be free from sin and secure from all disturbance. Amen. You've been listening to Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thigpen. To hear and or to download this episode along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs. Visit discerninghearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com And join us next time for Put on the Armor, a manual for spiritual warfare with Dr. Paul Thigpen.